Philippians chapter 5. It's wonderful to have with us today David and Vicki Pressler. Would you guys mind standing up? Because they go way, way back, and they haven't been around since 2019 face-to-face. And the miracle that happened, they look younger than they did in 2019. They went through, I guess it was a reversal pandemic. It was a health thing. All right. As I begin, I want to say a few words as John did with Demetrius, as Paul did with, with Timothy. I want to say a couple words about the man who opened in prayer today, Pastor Brian Messick. As Philippians 2.20 says, and I say this about Brian, he is equal souled with me. And by that I don't mean that he is a yes man, as they say, although he does say yes to the Lord a lot, in fact, pretty consistently. As far as ministry, pastoral ministry and service to the Lord, he is God's man. And... He has set himself apart to God, and God has set him apart to himself. He is equal sold with me in that he regards the word of God as the primary thing, as as everything. And he is a man who never commends himself, but he's approved because the Lord commends him, and I know this. I don't say these things without very deep contemplation, meditation, without a long history, without watching Brian's life for decades, but I want to say that about him. The Lord commends him. I commend him. The one who sent the Lord and who sent me has sent Brian. And I'm always impressed by his instant obedience. Not to me, not to me, unless what I've encouraged him to do has been something in the Lord and something I knew was of the Lord. And there was never a thought other than instantaneous submission to the will of God and obedience to the Lord. He doesn't do what he thinks is right. He does what the Lord has shown him to be right. He immerses himself into the word of God and he does it in a way that I admire. And if you honor him, you honor me, you honor the one who sent me, and you honor the one who sent him. And I'm saying that because that's just what I've been thinking about, Brian. And If you ask his wife, Jen, and if you ask his daughter, Brianna, and his son, Stephen, they would speak very highly of him. And we live in a time when not everybody in the immediate family speaks highly of the head of the house. (laughs) In this case, they would remarkably commend Brian. The reason I commend him today is not because of any favoritism. It's because the Lord commends him and has shown me that I should commend him today. 
So I am. And this does not mean, Brian, that you ever have to live up to anything. It's not about living up to anything. It's about living unto the Lord, which you have done. Now, when and if, if and when, Brian stands in this pulpit, as he does from time to time, as he has from time to time, as he will, no doubt, quite soon, perhaps, I would hope that you would receive him as you received me, as you received the one who sent me, as you received the one who sent him. So, he's not his own man, he's not a yes man, he's God's man. But he's, yes, he's a yes man in the way that I'm going to talk about being a yes man. So, as Demetrius had the testimony of the Lord and of John, Brian has my testimony and the testimony of the Lord, and I know the testimony of the vast amount of people here who know him and have heard him. And so you say, why'd you do that today? And I said, because the Lord told me to. How's that? We're going to continue in an apocalypse for right now, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, part 11. And we're going to be interweaving some many things into this. First, I want to consider the world as resistance to God. Then I want to consider the world as reconciled to God. Then I want to consider the world as the righteousness of God. All those definitions pertain to the world. The world as resistance to God. I'm a yes man. I believe that all the promises of God, including his promise to restore all things, is yes in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the yes of God to all the promises of God. He's the answer yes to all the questions you dare to ask of God like the question I dared to ask him years ago. Will you, did you, have you saved the world? I don't say yes and no to that. I say yes. Second Corinthians one twenty. And I say that he is the amen to all of God's exceeding great and precious promises. That he is the faithful witness and the beginning, Hearche, calls himself that in Revelation 3.14, the beginning of the creation of God, Genesis 1.1. I believe that Jesus is the amen of all the promises of God, including the promise that God will recapitulate everything in the heavens and on earth in him making the new creation of all things, everything in the heaven and on earth in him, making the new creation of all things in Christ Jesus. I'm not a yes man when it comes to the false pronouncements 
of pseudoscience or of popular ideologies or of much of Christian tradition. Not a yes man to the popular ideologies of this world in our time. I'm preaching in a context in which good is being called evil and evil is called good. Sweet is called bitter and bitter sweet. Darkness is called light and light is called darkness. And people are proud about all the wrong things. I'm not a yes man when it comes to all the false pronouncements of pseudoscience or of popular ideologies of this world. I say yes to this. The reality, reality itself, is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the reality of God. In God's gracious intention for and in his all-loving power toward all men and women and children. Jesus is the reality of the true God and of true humanity. For God is love and God is true. And human beings are truly human and truly in love in and by God in Christ Jesus. Faith is the recognition of the reality that is Jesus. It's the inner affirmation of that truth. Ultimately, it's the confession and witness to that reality, which is Jesus and to the truth that is incarnate in him. Faith is that which overcomes resistance to the reality and the truth that is in Jesus. I will say that again. Faith is that which overcomes resistance to the reality and the truth that is in Jesus. In my encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ in his immediate presence, I heard from the Holy Spirit, reality is Jesus. And then I heard, have a deep and abiding faith. God told me that reality is Jesus and then he gave me faith to overcome all resistance against that reality. Then he put me in the fight as he did with you. Have a deep and abiding faith, he said. It's something not of me. It's something evoked and stoked by the Holy Spirit of faith. It isn't of us. It's evoked and it's stoked by the Spirit of grace. It's the gift of God. Faith 
is that which overcomes resistance to the reality and the truth that is in Jesus. In Johannine doctrine, and when I say Johannine, I simply mean the writings by John, John's Gospel, John's Apocalypse, John's Epistles, Alpha, Beta, and Gamma, 1, 2, and 3. In the Johannine doctrine, the world, by one of its definitions, and the primary definition in John, the world is resistance to the truth, to the reality of God and the reality of man that is Jesus Christ. For as John writes in 1 John, 2.16, all the things of the world, in his definition of the world here as a system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's lifestyle are not of the Father, but of the world. Pride of life, pride of one's lifestyle. Bios life is used there. Has to do with biological life, everyday life, the lifestyle. Three things that make up resistance to the reality that is Jesus Christ. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. Pride of one's lifestyle. A pride that vaunts itself against the will of God. The love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the benevolence of God, the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the godliness of Christ. The truth of what man is in Jesus Christ. And what a woman is in Jesus Christ. And a child too, for permit the children to come to me. And oh, today, how they need to come to him. And they're being blocked by those who would normally be the ones to introduce them to him. Instead, they introduce children to perversion, to evil. We should be instant in prayer about this. And against that resistance. John also wrote something shocking in 1 John 5.19 under this rubric of the definition of the world that he gives. The whole world is under the influence of the evil one. The whole world is under the influence of Haponaros, the evil one. Now that you've absorbed those two verses, 1 John 2.16 and 5.19, consider this. John also wrote this. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, which is resistance to the reality that is Jesus Christ. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Faith not as something that is ours by derivation. Faith that is something that is ours by gift, by bestowal, by being provoked, evoked, and stoked 
by the spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13. Faith is that which overcomes resistance to the reality and the truth that is in Jesus. Our faith, evoked and stoked by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of faith, gifted to us as a perfect gift by the Father of lights, with whom there is no waxing and waning as with the moon, nor shadows or eclipses as with created luminaries, The gift of God is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith, but he's also the subject of our faith. For we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, not curvature in ad se, curved into ourselves, but extra nos in Christo, outside of ourselves in Christ. I was crucified with Christ. When one died, all died. And yet, I live. And yet, not I. But Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live in this flesh, in this unglorified human body in which the outer man decays day by day, but the inner man is renewed day by day. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Today, certain pseudo or quasi-scientific ideas are accepted without reservation, without thought or reflection, because they've been pronounced as if they were divine oracles. Words of God or decrees of God's prophets. And they are the prophets of the God of this age who blinds the minds of the unbelieving and the disbelieving into whom the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ has not yet shone. Will it? Yes. Their pronouncements are pronounced with the dogmatic certainty of thus saith the Lord. For the reason that they have the elusive aura of divine dogma, those who pronounce them and those who adhere to these assertions consider all who fail to agree readily and fully those who fail to confess and align their lives to these pronouncements are called heretics. The same goes true for much of Christendom. We're justified by faith, they pronounce, and I say, no, we're not. We're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So I'm branded as a heretic. Some places, not everywhere. Thank God, not everywhere. These ersatz scientific, really scientistic, as we made that pronouncement, these scientistic pronouncements are easily believed because of a vacuum created by unbelief in the truth. 
namely the truth of God that is incarnate in Jesus Christ, the eternal word, himself God, who became flesh. Now you see what happened to me today? I've been led into the trap of making a social comment, a comment on our social cultural times. It's okay, though. Since I've been led into the trap of making a social comment on our own times, I may as well continue. (laughs) Allied with the thunderous decrees of scientism, which are made with the illusory aura of prophetic certainty, that's where they get their power, because they're empty and vain and stupid and ridiculous otherwise. But allied with that is the recoil. People recoil when you say the word evil. They recoil with the term evil when you use the term evil. Like I did today, the whole world lies under the influence of the evil one. Evil is an offensive word to many today because they've destroyed the standard by which evil and good are discerned. So Psalm 11, 2 and 3, which is a psalm regarding completion, says this. Those under the complete control of sin, this is my translation from the Septuagint, which is Septuagint 10, 2 to 3 of the psalms. Those under the complete control of sin, hamartoloi, same word used in Hebrews 12.3, Jesus endured the hostility of people hamartoloi, not just sinners, we're all that, even being saved by grace, but people under complete control of sin. Maybe a good name for them would be, let's say, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, bragging about being completely under the control of sin. Disagree, they'll tear you apart, as Ishtar's followers always do. That's what they do. That's why they have these mystery cults where they tear people apart, literally. Those under the complete control of sin bent a bow and prepared Arrows, word arrows is the same word used in Ephesians 6.16, the fiery arrows of the wicked one. In the quiver to shoot down the straight in heart on a moonless night, when the light that rules the night has been obscured or is not shining, that's when they shoot their arrows at you. Because what you made, God, they have destroyed. So what gives us the ability to discern, and I'm going to be following this train of thought later on up the road. Not today. But what gives us the ability to discern what is evil and to distinguish it from good is actually an acquired skill in the message of righteousness, it's called. Hebrews, I'm right in Hebrews when I say that. Hebrews 5.13, unskilled in the word of righteousness, people can't discern what's profitable and unprofitable for themselves. 
They can't discern who's right to marry and who's not right to marry. They can't discern who's right to befriend intimately or not to befriend intimately. They cannot decide which way to go in life. They do not discern what's providential from what is just selfish. Because they're unskilled in the message of righteousness, the word of righteousness. And speaking of that message of righteousness, this is what we recognize to be true. To be the truth. I have more to say about this further on up the road, but now for today, the following is what we affirm against all resistance. And I'll simply start right here, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. We've spoken of the world as resistance to God. Here's the world as reconciled to God. My translation, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world. Now, in this case, the world, cosmos, has a different nuance of meaning, obviously dependent on the context. The world is all of humanity and all of its times and places. A world left to its own being hostile to God, of course. And even beyond that, the whole of created reality. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We've seen this as the radical alteration of the universal human situation. Not imputing to them their transgressions. And has placed in us the message of the reconciliation. The message, the announcement, the pronouncement of this reconciliation of the world in Christ. The message, the word, the announcement of the reconciliation. Consequently, we are ambassadors. We are an apostolate. We are an embassy. In behalf of Christ. God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. We say, and this is the gist of what we say, we urge you in behalf of Christ, receive and acknowledge by faith your reconciliation with God. Now we say this knowing that it is only God who evokes that faith. God who causes the shock of recognition that you're reconciled to God in Christ. It's a shock of recognition. For in representation of us, the one who knew no sin was made sin. So that we, what's the context here? Who's we? The world. So that we, please notice the word I'm going to use next. I'm selecting it very carefully. So that we would. You got a translation that says might? Misleading if it is. So that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Who's we? The world becomes the righteousness of God in him. 
Now that's amazing to me. The world is resistance to God. The world is reconciled to God. The world is the righteousness of God in Christ. That's the new creation. That's the remaking of the world. Jesus Christ is the for us in the phrase God for us. God made Jesus Christ to be sin for us. For us. Then. That's what he did then. What's then? At the cross. That we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Not that we might be the righteousness of God in him. But that we would be the righteousness of God in him. Now listen very carefully because this might ain't no maybe. In fact, it's not even really from our perspective might or would but did. Might, would, or did. Did. This word might, found in many translations, and I understand why they put it there because there's an ifness there, but the word might is not a maybe, a possibly, or a perhaps. God didn't say, let me make my son into sin so that maybe some at least will become the righteousness of God. If they believe, if they behave, if they believe, if they believe, or if they behave by believing. No, he didn't say that. The word might is not a maybe, a possibly, or a perhaps, but a definitely, and even a done deal. The gospel is the announcement of a done deal. It's not a list of things you have to do to secure God's favor. Admit you're a sinner. Be sorry for your sins. Invite Jesus into your heart and life. Promise to follow him now and forever. No. I've been saved, or I, let's say I've known the Lord for 51 years. I can't even do that. If there's any following of the Lord in me, it's God in me willing and doing of his good pleasure. That's good news. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't being preached by people who proclaim themselves to be evangelists. Pam and I had a good talk this week, and I said to her, I can't can't identify as an evangelical because of that gospel that they preach. I I can't identify as an evangelical. Because I have a gospel that announces a done deal. That the world has been reconciled to God in Christ. I can't even really say I'm a universalist because a universalist might be a Unitarian or might be somebody with a soft view of the atonement. So I guess I got to just be a yes man. To the yes and the amen. God made Jesus Christ to be sin so that we, the world whom God reconciled to himself in Christ, would be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, I'm going to take this a step further now. I've been careful and quiet so far. If there's any if in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it would be like this. If 
God made his son to be sin for us, the world, in context. You can read it. It's right there. Then God would make the world the righteousness of God in Christ. This is almost like an, a, a, what Aristotle would call a syllogism. I'll say it this way. If God made his son to be sin for us, if God made his son to be sin for us, the world, then God would make the world the righteousness of God in Christ. But God did make Jesus Christ to be sin, so God has made the world the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. What if you had the platform and the fame to preach the gospel and you said that? I have the platform. It's always been a small platform. I haven't wanted fame. I shirk. I shrink away. I eschew that. I see as greater evil than the immoral evil of our time, the evil of religious people trying to justify themselves, even if it's by faith. I see the evil of people trying to sanctify themselves, and worse, they succeed, and therefore they are holier than others. I see the great hazard, the occupational hazard of the pastor being arrogance, trying to build something for himself, a name for himself, a ministry for himself, a kingdom for himself. May God, I, pr I pray God, keep me from that presumptuous sin. Keep me from that great transgression. Might is often a misleading word in translation because unless the context make, makes might to mean strength or power, now there's might. When I was a kid, I didn't like Mickey Mouse, but I loved Mighty Mouse. Here he comes to save the day. You don't remember that. Obviously, I'm old, if not ancient. Might can mean strength or power, as in the power of his might, as Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord in the what? The power of his might. Now, might there doesn't mean maybe either. It means strength, divine omnipotence. And we need that today, to be strong in the power of his might. But when we say, I might see you tomorrow, there's an inherent uncertainty. If we say, I will see you tomorrow, there's a measure of certainty in our words because we're humans. So even when we say, I will see you tomorrow, we may or may not see you tomorrow. Three weeks ago, as I left this place, I could have said to Pam, I will see you in a few minutes. But then between here and there, I totaled my car. Did God, and God preserved me. I'm very grateful for that. That actually happened. I'm just using an example. Now, if God says, I will see you tomorrow. If God says, I will see you tomorrow. That's an immeasurable certainty. 
because God always does what he says he'll do. God has made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to be sin, and in exchange, he has made us, not just the church, but the world of humanity in all of its times and places, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That is, in the risen Jesus Christ, whom God has made to be for us, Righteousness, that means justification. Holiness, that means sanctification. And redemption, that includes the redemption of our bodies from their present state of mortality and corruptibility. 1 Corinthians 1.30, he has made him to be for us wisdom. I have no wisdom. Jesus Christ is wisdom for you. Holiness. I have no holiness. He has made him to be holiness for you. Righteousness. I have no righteousness. He has made him to be righteousness for you. Redemption. I cannot redeem myself. God has made him to be redemption. And apolutrosis there means not only redemption as a ransom from sin, but the guarantee of the redemption of your bodies on the day of redemption, when the great archpriest makes his second appearing, bringing salvation. Hebrews 9.28. That God has made Jesus Christ to be wisdom for us means that God has made him to be the salvation for us. Because the scriptures, the sacred texts, all scripture, all the sacred texts, says Paul to his protege, Timothy, are able to make you wise with respect to the salvation that is through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Wisdom and salvation are always connected in the Bible because God's wisdom is always with a view to saving. It's a salvific wisdom. God has made him to be wisdom for us means that God has made Jesus, whose name means salvation, to be salvation for us. And so, to be salvation. God is the God who saves. There is no God but God who saves. There is no God but God who is for us. You can't say, what about some other God? There is no other God than the God who is for us, and by us I mean the world. Jesus Christ is for the world today. And the more evil comes, and there's more and more evil coming, and more and more evil rearing its ugly head, the more you should be in awe that that evil is going to be converted into the supreme good and has already in the cross of Christ. You should not be amazed at the level of evil that men can do, but at the level of love that God has for men to change their evil into good. So view the evil. You can't stop seeing it today. It's everywhere. And it's overt, it's blatant, it's criminal sometimes, it's perverse, it's destructive, it offends the least of these children, and yet as you view it, 
And as you stand in resistance against the evil, stand in awe of the God who has reconciled the world to himself and who converts the evils of the human race into a supreme good by the just and the mysterious law of the cross. The reason I can't be an evangelical is evangelicals don't talk like this. They can't talk like this. They haven't had this light shine into their hearts yet. 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 That God has made Jesus Christ to be righteousness for us and holiness for us indicates the radical alteration of the human situation that occurred in the Christ event. And it is also happening now, today, that he transforms us into the likeness of his son. So our righteousness isn't just a position of our situation, but it's a changing transformation in our lives, ever-changing. Same with holiness, same with sanctification. Wrought in us by God, but a real thing. Something going on, imperfectly to be sure. And it's not time to revile other people and abusively speak of other people and to look at other people and see their imperfections and then magnify them. Those who magnify the imperfections of others you know what they, they're going to get? A very good look in the mirror of their innards, their inner self. And they may see a monster that you can't even create in Hollywood. And so we need to be transformed in the now. Don't worry, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, then at the cross, as he is now, as he will be in the age to come. The same Jesus who exposed himself to your judgment is the one coming in judgment and with judgment. The one who comes and who will be our judge is the one who exposed himself to judgment and became sin for us and became a curse for us. There will be no cursing of anyone in that judgment. Jesus Christ, the same on the cross, the same today, is the same at the parousia, is the same on the judgment bench. And man, do I have a whole lot of insights left that haven't yet come, not yet at all, on the sheep and the goats parable. just so that you will know that it is nothing like any evangelical ever imagined it to be and is probably much more opposite to what they think than you'd ever imagined. Now, let me just stay with this might and maybe thing for a minute. That God made him to be redemption for us indicates both the alteration of the situation and the future alteration of the universal condition of humanity, which is guaranteed at the second appearing of the great archpriest when he brings the consummation of universal salvation and the liberation of all creation, all of time, all of history, and all of our times.
So to get back to our original point, might as a maybe is not intended in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God has made the world the righteousness of God in Christ. It's a done deal. So instead of judging the overtly, blatantly, proudly immoral, when the proudly immoral gets in your face and judges you because you're a Christian and says to you, what do you think of me? You say, well, I think you're the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. God made you that. Now, you might be considered guilty of a crime then because they might have a heart attack because of what you said to them. Then you get to explain. So to get back to our original point, let me put another one, another verse before you. I'll put a finer point and a sharper edge on this. Consider Romans 14.9 where it says, Christ both died and rose again. Christ both died and rose again. I think you'd agree those facts, they, they happened. And then it says, and see if your translation says this, many of them do. If yours didn't, it's escaped this thing. But, and again, I'm not attacking the translations. I'm just showing that they can be misleading. It says, Christ both died and rose again to life in order that he might be Lord of the living and the dead. He might be Lord. In order that he might be Lord of the living and the dead. You know, Jesus, the Father, says, I'm going to send you to the earth. You're going to take on human nature, blood and flesh. You're going to have the same nature as the all human beings whom I'm sending you to redeem. You're going to die, you're going to rise again from the dead, and you might be Lord of the living and the dead if you do. You might be. That's not what he said. Christ both died and rose again to life. Not that he might be, but that he would be. The idea is that God's great intention was that Christ would both die and be raised to life, so that he would be Lord of both the living and the dead. I feel pretty flexible here today. I think that accident put me back into shape instead of knocked me out of shape. I think, I think it actually fixed something. I feel like I couldn't do that before. I'm doing things I couldn't do before. Thank you, Father. Now... can't be the omega-3s. I didn't take any today. No, it's, it has to be the Holy Spirit, the oil of the Spirit. Now, and by the way, as I speak, I'm praying for healing to be spoken through the word to this assembly and to people outside of the assembly that are home. The idea is that God's great intention was that Christ would both die and be raised to life so that he would be the Lord both of the living and the dead, not so that maybe he would. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. 
He will come to judge the living and the dead by his second appearing and his kingdom in 2 Timothy 4.1. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead as the Lord of the living and the dead. And who exposed himself to judgment for us all, the living and the dead. So the last judgment will be a judgment with a single outcome of life for all. For in Adam all die, but in Christ all means all will be made alive. And that means will be made alive in a resurrected, incorruptible, immortal human form called a spiritual body. A body of glory, Philippians 3.20. A spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15.4. 44, flesh and blood like this can't inherit the kingdom of God. So God said this, you will not all die, but you're all going to be changed, changed. That's the change of condition called the past, the permanent alteration of somatic status. Now, when the Lord comes, what happens? The rapture. (laughs) Ha ha, gotcha. The rapture happens. Harpazo, it's used, caught up. Rapture happens. But it's not the lie of God snatching up a few millions and leaving billions to endure the tribulation that already happened in A.D. 66 to 73. (laughs) The rapture means that when Jesus Christ comes, the dead shall be raised first then we which are alive and remain. There's going to be some of us alive and remaining on that day. There is a certain day when this is going to happen. And some of us are going to be still on the planet and still alive. We will be caught up together with them. That's all the resurrected dead caught up. The rapture then is really the change that happens in the universal appearing and consummation of our salvation when those that are alive and remain are changed just like those who have died are changed so that we'll all be changed and nobody, nobody gets left behind. It's another reason I can't be an evangelical or a fundy or whatever else you want to call it because I can't say, watch out, you'll be left behind. You see that big billboard down south usually is where they are in the Bible belt. The people in the Bible belt need to be belted by the Bible. I'll tell you that right now. Believe or be left behind. Apparently you've been left behind when God passed out brains. But anyways, and when he passed out sound doctrine. You weren't there, were you? Okay. So, I'm not going to say in closing because I'm not going to finish till two. It's two o'clock somewhere, probably. There's no maybe here. And I'm a little tired of self identified theological scholars who know this. They know this. But they'll say maybe, just to keep their job and not to blow the tassels off the caps of the bosses in their universities and colleges. I do believe the yes of God is yes for universal salvation, but I'm going to be scholarly and do this and say, well, I have to say maybe. 
Why? If you know it, why do you say may? Well, because I want to, I don't want to blow the tassels off those high hats of the dons at Oxford or the dons at Duke or the dons at Yale or the dons at Fuller or whatever other seminary. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my pension. I don't want to lose my popularity because I'm dear old Dr. So-and-so. Now, I'll just say this. If you were in the Navy, you'd be a JAG officer, probably. A JAG officer. Nothing wrong with JAG officers. I know them. They're very nice. I'm just talking about the abbreviation. But anyways, I'm tired of it. I'm a convinced universalist, but I don't want to tell people that because I don't want to give young believers a license to sin. Okay, right, okay, that's right. That's going to make them sin. They're already sinning, idiot. They're already sinning up a storm. And they're already sick of your ministry, and they're already sick of Christian things that you want to do, and you don't want to feed them doctrine, but you'll take them horseback riding and bowling. And there's nothing wrong with that either, but if that's all you do just to get the kids' attention, you're a loser. Parents do their children a favor by exposing them to doctrine, not activities, Christian activities. If I had to pick one or the other, I'd pick the doctrine. And if the kids didn't like it and they wanted more activities, that's the parents' problem. So, so let's put a cap and a tassel on our introductory statements. That God has made the world the righteousness of God in Christ is rendered even more certain by the apostolic declaration in Romans 5.19 that by the obedience... Of the one, Jesus Christ, the obedience of the one, when one died, all died, the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, in Romans 5.19, it says the many will be constituted as righteous. Constituted as righteous means made righteous, made the righteousness of God. Romans 5.19 says the same thing. Through his obedience, the many, but we've already said this a thousand times maybe, the many means the all because Romans 5.18 and 19 is like a proverb, a distich, a two-line poem where they both are connected to each other. They both are interchangeable. Romans 5.18 says that Jesus Christ is the one man, Jesus Christ, by whose grace and by whose one righteous act, his obedience to the extent of the death of the cross, all were justified. All received not only justification, but the justification that consists of life. All, and he means the all who sinned in Adam, the all who were once in Adam, all the sons of Adam, who all together and all at once went away from God. All, all means all. All people in all places of all times and all epochs So that when he comes, and we which are alive and remain, are caught up together with them, and we're all together, all times become contemporaneous. All times and all people become contemporaries. All people from all epochs can shake hands, party together, say hi together, 
dance together, shout together, be loud and proud together. Loud because they're shouting joyously to the Lord, proud because they are bragging in knowing the Lord. Let him who's going to brag, brag in this, that he knows the Lord. You want to be proud? Be proud of this, that you know the Lord. I hereby declare the rest of June to be Pride Month in Tetelestai Phalanx, in Tetelestai Church. Be proud that you know the Lord who exercises righteousness in all the earth, and be loud about it. Shout to the Lord all the earth, because it's all the earth that he saves. I hope I'm not stealing anyone's thunder. I hope I'm not copying anybody's holiday, but it's Pride Month here at Tetelestai Church. If anyone's going to be proud, let not the wise man be proud of his wisdom. Let not the rich man be proud of his riches. Let not the strong man be proud of his might. He might be. Let not the nonconformist be proud of his or her lifestyle. But let him who's going to be proud be proud of this, that they know and understand me, says the Lord, who exercises righteousness and saving justice in all the earth and mercy to all. You know him? Be proud of it. You know him? Be loud about it. Because the scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord say it. Let them say so. Psalm 107.2, LXX. So we'll take a little glance at Romans in our last moments here, 5.19. The future there will, will constitute the righteous, or to be the righteousness, to be righteousness, in Romans 5.19. The future tense is not future to us now. It's future to the saving act of righteousness in Christ. At the saving act of Christ, in his act of righteousness, what was future was the whole world would be made the righteousness of God. That which was future at that very act of Christ is now a fact of the present. The world has been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now you say, what, that means that we can act any way we want. No, it doesn't. There's between the then and the one day, there's the in-between. When we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, sometimes painfully, into the image of the Lord, into the image of holiness, into the image of justice and righteousness, into the image of love. So don't forget the now that's in between the then and the one day. The future, our future, is when we receive the change of condition that will be brought about on the day of the parousia. For we will all be changed, all be changed, all, all, all. How can some be left behind if all are changed? 
All will be changed, but I'm going to leave behind some who. Who will you leave behind if all will be changed to glory? Who do you leave behind? If God justifies and glorifies the same group of people, as many as he foreknew, those he called, that means he summoned by the gospel efficaciously. As many as he called, he justified. But he just said he justifies all. And as many as he justifies, he glorifies. He glorifies all. So we will all be changed. So you tell me who's left behind. Well, you know, they're going to be left behind to endure the great tribulation. Yeah, the one that happened and was over in A.D. 73 when it began in 66 at the siege of the abomination of desolation around Jerusalem. So he's going to send them back in time to endure a seven-year tribulation that happened in 66 to 73 A.D. Oh, I see. That's really smart. Not. The bastardization of the word rapture has made it to mean the catching up in a way of millions of believers leaving millions or billions more behind to endure the great tribulation that occurred in 66 to 73 AD ending with Masad. The real meaning of harpazo is the act of the transformation of the still living when the parousia happens so that we can catch up with those that have died and are changed in resurrection. So that that's part of what? The restoration of all things. Your eschatology, remember I said this a few months ago and I will close with this. The eschatology you hold has profound real life consequences. Profound real psychological consequences. If you believe in the bastardization of the rapture doctrine, your psychology and your means of dealing with people, your demeanor in life, the way you carry yourself and speak to others will be entirely different from and inferior to the kind of life and lifestyle where you believe that all things are going to be restored when Jesus returns, bringing salvation and the liberation of all creation. If that's your vision of the future, guess what? You're going to act different, think different, move different, carry yourself different, act differently toward your neighbor Act differently towards someone wearing an American flag and waving it or someone wearing a pride flag and waving it. You act toward them with reconciliation, following after peace, following after love, showing the love of God in Christ Jesus to them, recognizing the message of righteousness that God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. That happens to be the thing we call the gospel. So to that, I will echo the name of Jesus, which is the Amen. All right, thank you. Stay tuned for Wednesday messages online and Sunday messages here. And I hope you'll pay attention to the record I made early on in this message. I wanted it on record, everything I said today on record. All right.